I have this analogy of describing blockchains as cities. And, you know, the idea is that each of these individual blockchains are different cities. So, like, you know, Ethereum is New York and maybe Solana is LA and maybe, you know, near is San Francisco and then Avalanche is Chicago. And if you imagine these are all different cities and they have different characteristics, they have different specialties, they have different, you know, in Solana, the weather is really great. It's really cheap, but, you know, there's not as much culture as there might be in New York. In a world like that, the, the biggest thing that is missing if you don't have interoperability is basically a highway system. You don't have the ability to like, you know, let's say that you want to, you know, go shoot your movie. It's like, okay, you'll go to LA for that, but then you might go back home after you're done. I don't know. These are somewhat tortured examples, but you know, each of these different cities has something different within it that you might want to do. But that doesn't mean you need to uproot and move your entire life. Now you might, and you might decide to say that like, hey, I think LA is the place where I should probably have most of my assets and be kind of long-term settled. But the reality is the infrastructure within these different chains makes it attractive to different kinds of people and different types of use cases. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gord. I'm your host. We got a great guest today, Haseeb Kreshi, managing partner at Dragonfly Capital. How you doing today, man? Thanks for joining the Unstoppable Pod. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Josh. Excited to be here. Yeah, I, I've seen you do a ton of writing about Web3 and crypto. I see you doing a lot of podcasts. I think you might be, have your own podcast too that you frequent a lot. I've listened to you have a conversation with Naval and Vitalik. So I'm super excited to get to talk to you and ask you questions that have popped up in my mind as I'm listening to the content you're putting out. It's been so educational and I think this will be a great episode for our listeners too. That's kind. I'm, I'm glad to hear that and happy to jump into anything. Well, so can you start off giving us a background on your career, how you got to, how you really got to dive into Web3 and crypto? I know you have a technical background and, and now you're doing investing. So if you could walk us through that, that'd be great. Before I ever got into crypto, I used to be a professional poker player. It's a weirdly common background in the crypto industry to have come from poker. But I ended up uh, eventually coming into the tech industry became a software engineer. I was working at Airbnb, actually, at the time when I first caught the crypto bug, which was the same place that Brian Armstrong was when he founded Coinbase. It, back in 2017 is when I first really went deep into crypto. I got uh, my start in crypto doing some cybersecurity research. Me and a buddy of mine, we discovered a security vulnerability in a protocol called Bancor, which was, uh, it might be kind of... Uh, a bit OG for some of the folks who are coming into crypto within this last cycle. But Bancor in 2017 was, at the time, one of the largest ICOs ever. They raised 120 plus million in 20 minutes. And uh, they were also the first ever AMM on Ethereum. So they were the predecessor to Uniswap. Me and a buddy of mine, uh, we, were, we were looking into the code, trying to understand how it worked, and we discovered a security vulnerability. We published it. And that's how we first made a name for ourselves. Then I went to 21, which became Earn.com, which got acquired by Coinbase. Then I started my own startup working on a stablecoin when I ended up getting recruited by Naval. So Naval, of course, the founder of AngelList, early investor into crypto. He's the founder of a fund called Metastable Capital. It's one of the earliest funds in crypto. And he ended up recruiting me from the entrepreneurial side to become an investor. And at the time, I didn't know anything at all about investing. Investing was completely new to me. I had a huge amount of imposter syndrome. I was like, okay, oh, you know, I, I, I have no experience investing other people's money, how on earth am I going to be able to be good at this? But I learned over time, crypto back then was obviously very nascent. All this stuff was new. Nobody really understood anything. There were no theories. There was no frameworks. You know, this is before a lot of the, you know, today there's so many people writing about crypto, so many people trying to explain crypto to mainstream audiences. Like every given day, you know, you look around and there's like a hundred new Twitter threads about some new layer one or some new L2 or some new thing. And like, it's all, it's all there for you to consume. And there's so many educational materials today. That wasn't the case in 2017. 2017, you were really on your own. It was like you and the white paper and you had to just figure out what the hell was going on. 
you, you, you were kind of in the deep end of the pool if you were trying to be a crypto investor in 2017. But that's where I cut my teeth. And that's how I learned uh, about how to invest. That eventually brought me from Metastable to now where I'm at Dragonfly, where I lead the team here from the US side in, uh, in crypto investing. That's an awesome story. I have a couple follow-up questions of that. One being, have you ever played blockchain.poker, poker on that website before? <laughs> I have not. Okay. I have not. What is blockchain.poker? It's just a, a Texas Hold'em like site where you can play, you send uh, you send like Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash to it. You can play. That's where I play a little poker on the side just very casually. And that's where uh, I, I really got my first that was my first application I probably used that was crypto-based. Just curious there. On the t- poker tables, they say crypto is is supposed to be fun. I, I believe it. I, I don't really play poker anymore these days. It's been a while since I, you know, it's been almost 10 years since I've played poker at a serious level. So, uh, but yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't really play anymore these days. Oh, good. So, okay, you, you jump in in 2017. Now, you had this interesting experience of being someone who was there during the last cycle through the, the down years, and now you're still here investing more than ever. Do you look back at that 2017 through, you know, 2019 run as like now and be able to look back at it as that's an experience that prepped you for this cycle we're now in? I mean, does it give you confidence at, at how things will progress? Like what, what can you take away from that? A lot of things. I guess the high-level takeaway for me is that this time is different. Now, why do I say that? There's a lot of comparisons between now and, and 2018 when the 2017 bull market popped. In the 2017 bull market, I was fairly certain that we were in a bubble. It seemed very apparent to me that there were a lot of things here that didn't have sensible valuations and that most things in crypto were massively overinflated. Today is very different for a few reasons. One is that today, the things in crypto might have felt inflated, but they weren't inflated by 90%. They were inflated by maybe 2x, right? Which is like, okay, that's about how much the market corrected, maybe a little bit more than 2x. Today, most of the things that you see that are really valued highly in crypto, they work. They're real products. You can go and touch and feel them. They're not promises of eventually we'll build a thing that does a blah, blah, blah. These are real things that people who are buying them understand what the product actually is that exists today. You know, the stories that we were telling ourselves in 2017 about, oh, there are going to be data marketplaces, there's going to be encrypted this and that, and there's going to, you know, the, the entire world is going to be using blockchains for supply chain tracking and all this stuff. You know, now the we, we understand much better what blockchains are going to be used for, right? We know about GameFi. We know about DeFi. We know about you know, sort of what store of value purposes can be used for Bitcoin. The picture just looks very different today in the sense that um, people are not buying the stuff because of some, you know, broad misunderstanding of what blockchains can do. And that was really the case in 2017. The other thing, of course, is that the decline that we saw this year in the prices for crypto assets really was moving in lockstep with macro. And that's not what happened in 2017. When, when the 2017 bull market popped, and we saw that huge drawdown in 2018, broader markets were completely fine. There was no broader macro contagion. There was nothing else going on in the market. It was just that people in crypto lost confidence. And once they lost confidence, the thing just spiraled until it basically hit absolute rock bottom lows and everything in the space was down 90 plus percent. Now, there are some things that are down 90% from the peak. A lot of them are, you know, very, very risky altcoins or things that, you know, basically just fail to deliver. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's down you know, 60, 70%. And it might sound like, okay, well, 60 and 90, like what's the big difference? They're both down a lot. But the difference between six, being down 60% and being down 90% is literally a difference of 4x. That is a massively bigger outcome to be down 60% than to be down 90%. And, you know, the really high quality stuff in the space, most of it is down 60 to 70%. So it, it lost, you know, half to two thirds of its value. But Still, they're, they're very, very valuable multi-billion dollar networks that are still being hodled by the people who believe in them. So that, to me, feels very significantly different between now and, and 2017. Yeah, no, I, I, like those, I like those takeaways. And I do want to dive into some more of the, the macro environment concepts uh, in, in a second here, because I think you do a great job explaining them. But showcasing how this is different really from the things, there are things now that work back then and there were a lot of ideas. So that's really good to keep in mind. 
Now, one more question about your kind of crypto upbringing, and you mentioned Naval, is when you were when you were working with him, is there a framework, a model that you learned from him that you apply to your investing approach or your crypto approach? I feel like he's the he's the the guru of like thinking about things from this high level perspective and putting it into really succinct, like clear writing. Is there any big takeaways you took from Naval? A lot. I mean, I learned a huge portion of what I know as an investor from Naval. It's hard to encapsulate into, <laughs> unfortunately, most of the investing wisdom doesn't fit into a tweet, but uh, otherwise it would be much easier to do it. But what I would say is that um, I guess one of the biggest things that I took away from Naval is that uh, a few things. One is that if you can't understand it, it's probably bullshit. So crypto as an industry is just, it's full of bullshit. There are so many people who are trying to raise money for things that kind of sound like maybe that could make sense, but like I'm not smart enough to get it. Usually if, if when you feel that way, usually it's a sign that the thing that they're building is bullshit. If they can't actually explain it in a way that makes you nod your head and go like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That I feel like that should exist. Then probably it's not valuable. And everything that you see in, you know, the top, you know, 20, 30 assets on CoinMarketCap, they're all things that you could explain to anyone. You know, maybe not anyone, but, you know, somebody who has a cursory understanding of crypto. And here's the other thing that I think Naval really taught me is that if you want to be a great investor, you need to invest in people who are solving big problems. And that seems really obvious, but again, it's not obvious. There's a strong temptation in crypto to invest into things that are going to be quick wins. So you see that, you know, a lot of stuff in DeFi is working. You see another fork on a new chain and you're like, great, I'll invest in this. And then, I, you know, it's a one year log up and then I'll flip it and then I'll move on. And this kind of investing, it can work. People, some people make money doing it, but that's not how you make the big money. That's not how you make real returns. The way that you make real returns is by investing in people who are solving hard problems. And hard problems are hard. They're hard for a reason. They take time. They, they take ingenuity. They take world-class talent and insight. And again, if you look at everything in the top 20, there's nothing in the top 20 that was built quickly. There's nothing in the top 20 that was a fly-by-night fork that's like, oh, hey, I'm going to launch this new thing on a new chain and then do it, blah, blah, blah. Um, everything that's in the top 20 solved a big problem. So whether it's something like Solana or Avalanche or Uniswap or Chainlink, these are all things that are tackling huge problems and making the best shot at trying to solve it. And that's what it looks like to make a great investment. And so that's what that, that very much informs the way that I think about investing. And it's also how I justify the, the, the strategy and the philosophy that we have at Dragonfly, which is that we try to back people who are solving big problems. And when we see an entrepreneur who's trying to do something incremental, generally speaking, we, we either turn away from it or we tell them like, hey, this is cool. I believe you that you can make money doing this. But there are a lot bigger problems in the industry that you could be solving. I always love it when I see entrepreneurs take an idea that they know they can execute on and decide to make it bigger and make it even more uh, ambitious. That is the the most important thing to see as as, a, as an investor. No, I, I like that a lot. The these big problems, and it's something that really resonated with me at Unstoppable Domains, like where I work now, is tackling this identity problem. It felt so it felt so large, but also could start seeing the the game plan, the steps to get there. So I do like that. the the best The best crypto projects are the ones solving big, world changing challenges. And so like something we, I think we see is a lot of, this is kind of one of my macro questions I was going to throw out to you. Like a lot of these companies we see today were founded during the last bear market. You know, it took years of building before we got to the 2021 kind of hype cycle again. Why is that that you think we see a lot of building happening during downtimes? Or is building just going to be, are we at the stage now where building's happening in up and down? Or do you think there's something specifically special about building during times when the focus isn't on price? I think that this is probably an illusion. I think really what's happening is that our attention is changing. So when in a bear market, there's just less to talk about, about price action or drama or you know exciting new launches or whatever. And so the only thing we notice is people who are working on stuff that already exists or that is coming up. But those people are always there. Most of the time, you're just not paying attention to it because there's more shiny things happening. So the reality is like builders are always building. That's why they're builders. So, you know, all these projects, they all have change logs. They all have new launches. They all have new things that they're, that they're building. Most of the community just doesn't notice because 
we're not paying attention. We're we're being ensnared by the new shiny dramatic NFT drop or the new, you know, <laughs> the new game that ends up going viral and getting really big. And in a bear market, that just doesn't happen as often. And so the the builders take up more space in a bear market. Yeah. Makes sense. So let's let's talk about Dragonfly and the investments you're currently focused on. So, you know, recently you raised six hundred fifty million for the new crypto fund. And I know that's your third, correct? I heard you say that you're you're not about predicting the future, you're paying attention to the present. And so I'm curious on what you're investing in and why and like what you're seeing in today's present that's capturing your attention. It's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I was lucky to have my words parroted back at me. Okay, what what is going on in the present that I'm paying attention to? So, so one thing is that we're we're certainly seeing the evolution of crypto gaming, right? So we're seeing the first generation of play to earn games really starting to struggle, and the sustainability is being really deeply questioned by just the the kind of economics of the, the economic state of a lot of these Gen One play to earn games. So we're now seeing a lot of entrepreneurs who are completely rethinking the play-to-earn model and how to make a sustainable crypto game possible. There's been so many teams that have been funded within the last couple of years. And this is very common, right? You often see this, that uh, there are a lot of people who are raising on this pretense that they were going to do exactly what the previous winner did. Then the previous winner turns out that what they were doing was not sustainable and it wasn't even a good idea. And then the new generation of builders is like, okay, wait, huh? Let's go back to first principles. Let's see what exactly it is uh, that I think is the right way to build a crypto game. So I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in economic models for new crypto games. And I think we're going to see them come to life in the next year or two. So that'll be interesting. And, and you know, one of the things when you're thinking about a bear market is in a bear market, naturally, there's going to be less speculation. There's going to be less, you know, get rich quick stuff. There's going to be less quick money. But consumption is going to continue. Uh, even if investment is going to be dampened. So uh, if people are speculating less, that doesn't mean that they're consuming less. That doesn't mean they're playing less games. That doesn't mean that they're you know, en en enjoying stuff. And so I think what we're going to see is a shift away from speculative activity more towards consumptive activities, which in crypto means gaming. It means things like using DeFi. I mean, you know, all these other, all these other things I think are going to become more to the forefront as opposed to where they were during the bull market where they kind of take a backseat to the new token launches, the new NFT drops, the new things that allow people to make money. The, the second area that I'm paying a lot of attention to is interoperability. So it, it's very clear right now that um, interoperability is a big problem. You know, we're in this multi-chain world. We know that we're not going back. We know that, you know, ETH 2.0 in this kind of roll-up centric model is, is years away. So we need to have a scaling story that involves other blockchains. And, you know, almost all the news over the last, you know, month has been about other blockchains, it's been about non-Ethereum blockchains. Um, and so it, it's very clear that they're taking up a lot of mind space. A lot of users are on alternative layer ones, but we still don't have a dominant standard about how tokens and messages are passed from one chain to another. So I think that's a big problem that needs to be solved. Uh, and then the last thing is the rise of these new layer twos. So, you know, there, there was word that um, you know, Optimism is coming out with a token. Uh, obviously, Arbitrum right now is the, is the person to beat. We've got Starkware and Matter Labs both growing very rapidly, and they have, uh, they have, they have a lot to prove on the ZK roll-up side. So I think this is going to be, you know, the, the next 12 months is going to be the era for roll-ups. Uh, I think we're going to be thinking, we're going to be talking and thinking more and more about roll-ups as they're finally becoming mature and really growing and potentially even scaling to chains other than Ethereum. So uh, that, that I think is going to be the third dominant narrative over the next 12 months. Great. So a couple of follow-up questions on all three of those as I'm trying to you know, think about them in, in a new way, a, a fresh way. Really excited to tap into your perspective. So you say like gaming is one of these areas and you mentioned economic, economic models that were going to be introduced. So what is that... What does that mean? Can you dive a little deeper into that? I feel like play to earn is mentioned a lot and people are like loosely familiar. But when you talk about economic models, are you also referring to these in-game assets that are going to be that are going to be usable from other creators? Or are you talking about being able to like rent out NFTs you own to other players? So those are both examples of relatively straightforward concepts that have been around for a while. 
right? The idea of, I mean, in a way, Axie Infinity and their scholar system, which is where you have some basically financier who can loan out their axes to somebody who's poorer and they have to pay back, you know, uh, like 80% of the profits to the, to the, um, to the financier. That has existed for a while. So the idea of loaning and borrowing NFTs is an old concept. There are a lot of startups that are trying to go after this, trying to make, make the market completely automated. But at the end of the day, we already do this. And uh, the idea of importing NFTs from one platform to another, well, that's what Sandbox is all about. So there are, there are already precedents for this, and I think it's going to accelerate. There will definitely be more examples of it. But when I think about re-envisioning the economic designs for a lot of these chains, you know, if you think about Axie Infinity, Axie Infinity and Stepin are both examples of networks in which everybody who plays the game makes money, right? That's the idea. You play the game, I pay you to play the game. And at equilibrium, these things cannot work forever. If they did, if they were to work forever, there would be some kind of perpetual motion machine, right? Like it's just not possible that every single person who plays the game makes money because who are they making the money from? Who's paying into the system to make sure that all of these people are getting payouts? So, you know, today in Axie Infinity, we've seen the, the average wage that a, uh, you know, the, the, the marginal player in Axie Infinity can make has cratered, right? It used to be that you were making, I think, like something like twice the minimum wage in the Philippines playing Axie Infinity. Now you make a small fraction of the minimum wage playing Axie Infinity in the Philippines. And so we've seen the, the economic model start to pancake. But the, the core thing of like, can you do, can you do this forever? Can you pay people to play your game? I think the answer is no. And you have to move towards something that's more sustainable, which increasingly people are calling play and earn. And the idea of play and earn as opposed to play to earn is that not everybody will make money, right? Which is obvious concept, right? But it, it's simply, it's more like poker. In poker, some people make money, some people lose money, some people break even, but everyone has fun, right? Everyone has a good time, usually. I mean, sometimes people don't have fun when they lose money, but the, you know, broadly people want to play poker again, even if they do lose money. It's striking that there are so few games like poker. You know, I, I really can't think of a whole lot other than like other gambling games like, you know, backgammon or something that people like to bet on. For the most part, they're these very old games of skill that tend to be, they tend to involve cards or, you know, they tend to be played in casinos. Those are the only games like poker. A lot of this new generation of crypto games are going to look more like that. They're going to be games where uh, the economics are sustainable because everybody, some people make money, some people lose money. There's some element of chance. But it's fundamentally a game of skill where you feel like you have a lot of agency, you're being very, you're being highly engaged, and you're okay with losing. You're okay with actually not making money. Now, I think Stepin is really interesting because Stepin is one example of a game. For those who are not familiar, Stepin is uh, it's called Move to Earn. The idea is, you know, you buy some NFT shoes, you run or you walk or whatever, and you earn some, uh, basically you earn some points, and these points can be converted to money. That's the, that's the high level. And with something like Stepin, you know, today, most everyone is making money, although obviously the value of your shoes or the value of uh, the, the step in tokens fluctuates. So you may lose money if you, you know, buy in at the wrong time or hodl or whatever. But eventually, you can imagine a world where people are paying uh, on average to play step in, um, which is which is conceivable because the fact that people will feel good after playing step in because it's like, OK, hey, I, I, sp I didn't make money, but at least I got some walking in or at least I like ran and I, you know, shaved off a couple pounds. So because of the fact that step-in is pro-social, right? It's something that is actually good for people to do. You can imagine in the same way, you know, a lot of people pay 50 bucks a month for a gym membership that they never go to, but it kind of makes them feel better. It kind of makes them feel like they're doing something. If step-in actually makes you run, then I, I suspect that people will be willing to sort of pay into the system and lose a little bit of money if they didn't hit their goals. It's obviously hard to hit your goals. A lot of people won't. In the same way that in poker, it's hard to make money. Some people won't, but they won't necessarily feel bad about the game of poker. Uh, and I think that's the direction that a lot of play to earn stuff is going to have to move over the next year in order for them to really arrive at sustainable economic models. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how you, it's a subtle word shift of play to earn and then play and earn and how that changes the way you think about it. There's a lot of those X to X things that I ask myself, you know, do we want to include the financial side to this? Like, well, does everything need the financialization aspect to it? Because I think that pushes a group of people away, but it also, at the same token, probably brings a group of people who do have that interest to the table. So yeah, no, very, very interesting. Thanks for that breakdown. So that was, that was gaming. Now, the another area you talked about focusing on is interoperability. Now, when I think about this, 
I think about how all this time I'm seeing news about the next chain blockchain that is faster and more scalable. And so if you think we're going to be living in this multi-chain world, you know, doesn't even matter at the end of the day what chain you're on if we're just going to keep jumping to the next one that has speed or scalability improvements. I mean, I don't I guess I'm not quite understanding how to wrap my head around how to think through that environment when like does your data just live on the chain of the moment then we're going to be jumping to the next thing. The reason why interoperability matters. So I, I don't think it's true that chains basically don't matter once interoperability is solved and that your data can basically just go anywhere or you might as well just kind of be a migrant and move from chain to chain. You may need to do that for certain things. But the way that I like to think about interoperability, uh, so I have this analogy of describing blockchains as cities. And, you know, the idea is that each of these individual blockchains are different cities. So, you know, Ethereum is New York and maybe Solana is LA and maybe, you know, near is San Francisco and then Avalanche is Chicago. And if you imagine these are all different cities and they have different characteristics, they have different specialties, they have different, you know, in Solana, the weather is really great. It's really cheap, but, you know, there's not as much culture as there might be in New York. In a world like that, the, the biggest thing that is missing if you don't have interoperability is basically a highway system. You don't have the ability to like, you know, let's say that you want to, you know, go shoot your movie. It's like, okay, you'll go to LA for that, but then you might go back home after you're done. Or if you want, I mean, I don't know, these are <laughs> somewhat tortured examples, but you know, each of these different cities has something different within it that you might want to do. But that doesn't mean you need to uproot and move your entire life. Now you might, and you might decide to say that like, hey, I think LA is the place where I should probably have most of my assets and, and you know, be, be kind of long-term settled. But the reality is the infrastructure within these different chains makes it attractive to different kinds of people and different types of use cases. Now, if you don't have that highway system, if you don't have an easy way to get from, you know, San Francisco to LA, then these two ecosystems are going to be much more balkanized. It's going to be much harder for there to be, quote unquote, inner, inner city commerce uh, between SF and LA. You really want that. It does an enormous amount of good to have these uh, protocols able to go cross-chain and able to basically not have to think about the implementation details. You know, when you're using the internet, you use servers from different places, right? So you, you might go to CNN.com and CNN.com calls like some other ad service and then some other layout service and some other thing. And these all live on different servers and you have no idea that it's happening. You don't need to care that it's happening. Like why would you, why would anyone need to tell you that they're different servers? But in the very early days of the internet, if you were interacting with different servers, you could tell because it would be extremely slow. The second, you know, HTTP call and the third HTTP call, they would be, they, you know, it, it'd take ages. You had to do everything on one server because otherwise it, it, it was just the latency was going to be too bad. You know, we've moved to a world with the internet that the question of which servers is it on has been totally abstracted from you as a user. You have no idea how many servers you're calling. You don't care. You don't need to care. Um, and eventually this will also be true for blockchains, but it's not true today and it's not going to be true for a while. But that's the end game. The end game is that you're on a blockchain and you don't even need to know what blockchain is this other application on. You just call the other application. Yeah. I You mentioned the server thing. And it's funny because just the other over this past weekend, we were sitting at a restaurant and we we're talking about the cloud with one of my friends. And she didn't quite get, you know, where your data was backed up to. And kind of explaining something similar, like you don't need to know you know, where it is. You just got to know that it's backed up in like 10 different locations. So your data is always secure. And then we were at a restaurant on the menu. You could see the, the, the link, the URL was an Amazon S3 bucket. So you could see that it was, you know, S3 dot. And it was actually the server was located in the EU, which I thought was interesting since we were in America and I thought we would have been directed to like a US one, right? But okay, with interoperability then, I feel like some of the different L1s, like you mentioned, a, you just mentioned a bunch of them as cities. Solana in, in LA, ETH in New York, Avalanche in Chicago. Do you feel like they're marketing themselves as these as these blockchains for you know specific use cases? Or are they being marketed as like ETH killers? And so I wonder, you know, why is Solana LA? Is it doing something different? Like is Solana going to be where we actually do all of our NFT trading on because it's the fees, like all the blue chip NFTs are going to start being released on Solana because of the fees and whatnot. Whereas, you know, Avalanche might be more financial related. Are we going to start seeing them separate out like that? Or do you think there are still going to be these general blockchains that are going to tout their transaction speed improvements and, you know, stuff like that? 
So I think the concept of ETH killers, I mean, this concept really came about in 2017, 2018. So it was very much the last cycle term for most of these alt L1s. Now we mostly call them alt L1s. And I think the reason for that is that we now realize, like, look, these things are not going to kill anyone. These things are going to coexist. The, the, you know, in the same way that, like, you know, is, uh, is LA the New York killer? No, they're two different cities and they, and they both have different, they, they, they're very differentiated from each other. They both have their own specialties and the world is going to be big enough for both of them. It turns out they're not really competing with each other in such an obvious way. I think this is a good description of how L1s compete with each other and how they think about uh, coexistence. So, you know, it's certainly the case that Solana and Avalanche and, you know, all these other layer ones are fully general in that you can do anything on these blockchains just the same way you can on Ethereum in principle. Now, how will they differentiate? What will be their specialties? Um, We're still discovering that. It is actually a little bit weird if you think about it. So right now, Solana, the biggest thing that's working on Solana today is NFTs. A huge amount of trading activity of NFTs goes takes place on Solana. And I think Solana DeFi broadly is struggling. Right. Solana DeFi is not really doing super hot, which is ironic because NFTs are, if you think about it, Solana is a super high performance blockchain, right? Like, you know, Anatoly has described Solana as the NASDAQ of blockchains. So if, if Solana is the NASDAQ of blockchains, it was super fast, got very uh, quick block time, very low latency, uh, very high throughput. But the primary thing it's being used for is trading NFTs, which does not need low latency, which does not need high throughput. Like trading NFTs is actually, kind of fine on pretty much any chain. It's a little odd that that's the thing that Solana is working for, but it is the case. That's what Solana is working for. So now eventually I do think that Solana will become, you know, more of Solana's product market fit will probably become around the things that take advantage of its scalability and it's very high throughput. It's very low latency, but today it's not really the case. Avalanche is certainly more of a DeFi chain and in gaming, I think seems to be the second thing that, that is really working on, on Avalanche. I think it's also still early, right? These cities just were founded like a year, a year and a half ago, roughly for most of these. And they're just now hitting their inflection points of growth. So I think we're going to discover a lot more in the coming years about how, what are the identities of these chains and where do they really develop their own specialization and network effects? Yeah. What, what type of identity do you see being Ethereum's? I'm kind of curious because if from the NFT world, I see people saying that the the highest class NFTs will be minted on Ethereum. Maybe cheaper ones will go elsewhere. Like the you don't you wouldn't paint a Picasso on you know printer paper. You want to put it on a canvas. So like, what do you see that identity being for Ethereum moving forward? Because right now it's been a little bit of a catch all since a lot of the development has happened there over the years, and now it's starting to disperse. Yeah, I, I think. In the analogy of L1s as cities, Ethereum is Manhattan. It is the most expensive, most congested, super old, full of technical debt. Everyone loves to complain about it. It's so crowded. It's like, it sucks. It's so annoying. But the reality is that Manhattan is the most happening place in America. If you just look, you know, pound for pound, the richest people in the world, the most connected people in the world, the most cultured people in the world, the most accomplished people in the world, they're in Manhattan. And the same thing is true of Ethereum, right? If you look at Ethereum, you know, all the biggest DeFi protocols, just like all the biggest banks are in Manhattan, doesn't matter how expensive it is, you have to have your headquarters there. Same thing is true of DeFi. All the biggest DeFi protocols, they're on Ethereum. All the biggest NFT projects, you know, it's like the biggest artists, the biggest galleries, the biggest whatever, they're all on Ethereum. Now, if you're, uh, you know, the rent is crazy, the congestion sucks, it takes, it's impossible to get around town. If you are, an up-and-comer, it might be too difficult for you to, you know, it's like, okay, maybe 20 years ago, I could have moved to Manhattan and gotten a cheap apartment. Now it's like almost impossible to even just get like a studio for, you know, any sane amount of prices. I have to go somewhere else. I have to start my career in another place. And a lot of people increasingly are, are feeling that way about Ethereum. Is that, look, Ethereum is awesome. Clearly it is the center of gravity of the crypto universe, but it's too expensive. I'm priced out. And I got to look elsewhere if I want to plant a flag and, and build my community. Like maybe from your investor lens, if you see a, an application, a new project, a new company, and they have this mission of doing something that's going to affect, like their target is literally billions of people. Like you talk about those big problems. They want to go after a problem that affects a billion people and they want to bring them to Web3. 
do you see that solution being built on Ethereum? Or do you think because of that, it needs to go elsewhere? Because like you mentioned, the people in Manhattan are, are the wealthiest. They're, they're the old money. I mean, the, it's expensive to live there. So can an application that's going to reach the next billion crypto people be built on Ethereum if the fees are high there and that may not translate well to mass adoption? The reality, to be honest, is that there is no blockchain anywhere that could support a billion people. We are way too far away from being able to actually, to really seriously talk about the, the big B number. Right now, we are in the single digit millions of users for blockchains. That's all that any blockchain can support. It doesn't matter if it's Solana, it doesn't matter if it's Avalanche, it doesn't matter if it's Ethereum. Now, eventually we need to get there. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are going to have to do a lot of work for us to be able to get there. Um, but, but to be honest, like, I, I don't think it matters so much about the chain. Um, you can make these kinds of applications work on pretty much any chain. I mean, uh, you maybe you can't do it on Ethereum Layer 1, maybe you need to use a roll-up, but you can certainly remain within the Ethereum ecosystem or do an Ethereum sidechain the way that Axie Infinity has. So there are a lot of options available to you if you really want to try to make a run at creating a you know, mass market blockchain application. But the reality is that it's going to take time before we can really target huge, huge, huge numbers of users. Right now, the number of people who own crypto is in the hundred, probably, you know, between 100 and 200 million, if I had to guess, uh, people in the world who own crypto. So, um, you know, bringing a billion people on chain, no way, not yet. It's going to take, it's going to take a lot of time before we can get to that level of scalability. Totally. No, the, honestly, great, great way to help me like zoom out there a little bit. I do see a lot of founders, companies that, you know, they, we, they come out with these big, ambitious, lofty statements, you know, onboard the next billion. But, you know, we really got to reframe a little bit. We, we got to get to 10 million uh, users for an application, you know, start starting smaller. Now, you have mentioned rollups, and it's uh, that, that third area of areas of interest you mentioned earlier. Now, Rollups in your city analogy, I was reading, you, rel you relate to skyscrapers. Is there an example of a rollup that you see adding a lot of value to an L1 that you could call out to help like the listeners kind of get their mind around, you know, what's an example of one that's, that's actually helping that layer one achieve some scalability for, you know, the applications and whatnot? Well, the biggest rollup today is Arbitrum. Uh, it has the most TVL of any other rollup. So Arbitrum is an optimistic rollup. It basically an optimistic rollup. Essentially, what it means there 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 are two approaches to building rollups. One is optimistic, and the other is zero knowledge. So, an optimistic rollup basically the idea you know a rollup is like a separate chain where a bunch of other computation is happening, and the question is always how do you know that the rollup is being operated correctly? How do you know they're not cheating in the rollup? So, in the optimistic world, what you do is you assume that the rollup is correct, but if anybody can prove that the rollup misbehaved they basically win a bounty. So it's kind of like, you know, one of these whistleblower programs. So you say, look, let's assume that everything is good, but if it's not good, we'll pay you a bunch of money. And that's how we'll know that it's good because if anybody finds something, uh, some cheating or some or some uh, incorrect computation, they're going to win a prize. And so with that, we can ensure that the computation is correct. The other approach is the zero-knowledge rollups. And zero-knowledge rollups take the opposite approach. They say, we're going to post for every single block a unequivocal mathematical proof that the computations were done correctly. In which case, you don't need bounties, you don't need to reward anyone, you don't need whistleblowers, you just know that everything is happening correctly, right? So it's almost like using code and mathematics to prove the correctness of something rather than using incentives to prove the correctness of something. So those are the two different designs. Now, optimistic rollups are, in some sense, they're easier to build because in order to prove that all the computations that happened in this other blockchain are all correct, it's actually really hard to do. It's very mathematically and computationally complex to do that, especially for general computation. Meaning that if you if you allow smart contracts, you allow people to do whatever they want, to prove that the whatever they wanted to do was done correctly is actually really hard. It's a lot harder than just proving a more bounded number of possibilities, such as only transfers. Right. So we already have. So Matter Labs was the first rollup that uh, first generalized rollup that was uh, existed on Ethereum. Matter Labs, which they created a, a zk rollup called called zk sync, a zero knowledge rollup. And uh, ZK Sync has been live for a long time to, for doing transfers and payments, right? So if you just want to pay people, you want to move around NFTs, you want to transfer stuff, that's already live. It's been live for years. That works really well. It's super low cost. But if you want to do general computation, that's much harder to do in zero knowledge. And that's why the rollups that are live today, 
uh, and that are actually, you know, sort of working in mainnet on doing general computation within a rollup are all optimistic rollups. It's a lot easier to prove fraud than it is to prove correctness. So uh, we've got optimism and we've got arbitrum, which today are the two big rollups. They're working. The problem, though, with optimistic rollups is that optimistic rollups are still fairly expensive, meaning that you know if if it costs like five bucks to do a transaction on Ethereum mainnet, on a rollup, an optimistic rollup, it might cost something like fifty cents to do that transaction. So it's cheaper, but it's not absurdly cheaper, right? And oftentimes even more than it might be like a dollar to do the transaction on optimistic rollup, depending on the you know the sort of the particulars of how that day looks in terms of fees and congestion and how much uh, throughput the rollup itself is doing and the kind of transaction that's doing. Whereas in a zk rollup, the marginal transaction can be significantly cheaper depending on the type of computation. Yeah, the difference between rollups and L2s. That, that difference in my head, I don't always see it too clearly now. Maybe in a, a quick way, because I do want to get to another question, is how do you differentiate L2s from rollups? So rollups are a subset of L2s. So L2s is a more broad concept of basically anything that is blockchain-like or allows you to do blockchain-like activity, but abstracted away from the layer one, and ideally having minimal trust assumptions in the layer two itself, and most of the trust you have to put is just in the layer one. So an example of another layer two is, for example, Lightning Network on top of Bitcoin. And they're equivalent to the Lightning Network on Ethereum, although they're, they're, they don't get a ton of usage. Um, they're pretty they're pretty small today. There are things like Seller. There are things like uh, Connext that are on top of Ethereum, which are other types of layer twos that are not rollups. But rollups are the most, they're the form of L2 that people are most excited about. And the reason why is that rollups allow you to scale the core thing that the blockchain does, which is smart contracts. So both optimistic and ZK rollups allow you in principle to do smart contracts, which is what everyone is excited about, right? Whereas other forms of layer two, like uh, payment channels or state channels, they don't really allow you to do smart contracts very easily, not in the way that we think of doing smart contracts, like on Ethereum. So that's why most of the conversation in the last couple of years has, you know, when we say L2, usually what people mean is they mean rollups, but technically L2 is a broader concept than just rollups. Awesome. Great explanation. Now, another question I had is around the biggest problem in crypto. And I, I've heard you say that the biggest problem in crypto is identity. I don't know if you still hold by like that's the, one of the biggest problems or if that's just a big problem. But why is identity a problem in crypto? And I'm asking because, you know, at Unstoppable, we're thinking about Web3 identity really critically. And so I'm curious as to you know, how you're thinking through that and, and why you think that needs to be solved. I do think that identity is the biggest unsolved problem today in crypto. It's been the holy grail for a very, very long time. I mean, people were talking about this back in 2017, 2016, about the idea of how to, how to create and solve identity on chain. Why is it so hard? The reality is today, when you interact with anything on chain, uh, you are an address. And it's very hard to make you anything more than an address. There, there are some, there are some applications that try to get more high dimensional data on who you are, such as, you know, looking at, have you interacted with governance? Have you interacted with this protocol? Maybe you're eligible for an airdrop if you did this, you did that. But it's, it's very low dimensional data. We don't know very much about you and we can't make good differentiation about you. So there are a lot of applications that are gated on having some robust notion of identity in order for those applications to work. So one obvious example is credit. It is impossible to have a notion of credit, meaning you, you, you're able to borrow something without putting a collateral. There's no way to come up with a concept of credit without having a notion of identity. I have to know who you are, and I have to know that if, in the case of a default, that something bad happens to you that, that gives you a disincentive to default. But if you want to do credit without identity, then you're just an address. And if your address goes in the red and you decide that, like, hey, it doesn't make sense for me to pay back the loan, you can just walk away, you know, sh shed the address and go start a new one. Like, what's going to stop you? How can anyone even tell? who you were when you kind of walk away from your identity. In the real world, we have the concept of bankruptcy. Even if you take out credit and you can't pay it back, then you have to declare bankruptcy. There's a cost associated with it. There's a disincentive to do it. It's bad for you. You don't want to declare bankruptcy, right? It's, you'd rather pay back your debts if you can. We don't have a concept of bankruptcy in crypto. Bankruptcy is just, you know, you you go underwater on your loan, you walk away, start a new address, and, and it's done, right? You start a new pseudonym, get a new NFT, you know, PFP, and then you know, you're off to the races. So that concept has to change in order for us to have some of these more robust concepts like identity. And there are many more, there are many more things like this that require a notion of identity in order for them to work. 
most of the world, you know, I was, I was chatting with somebody about this uh, a little while back. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Most of the world operates on credit. Like you go into a, you land in a new city and you go into the, uh, you know, the local enterprise or local Hertz and you pay a hundred bucks to drive off the lot a 10,000 or now, I mean, now even more, like a 20, $20,000 car. You're paying a hundred bucks a day to, to have with you completely in your ownership, a $20,000 giant complex piece of metal, right? How does that work? It works because of credit. It works because the world knows that we can trust you. And an enormous amount of economic activity is predicated on that concept. But we, it is completely inaccessible to us in crypto. And I think that will eventually change. Now, it plays into other things like, you know, gaming. Obviously, the, you, you need a more robust notion of identity for a lot of stuff in gaming. Marketing, being able to market to people, being able to understand who they are and how valuable they are as customers. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a DeFi protocol and you can't tell, am I interacting with a civil attack, people, somebody who's trying to, you know, farm my, my airdrop? Uh, am I dealing with a hedge fund or am I dealing with, you know, uh, a random Joe Schmo who I really want to get in the door? I really want him to start, him or her to start trading on my platform. If you can't tell the difference between those three, then how on earth are you going to do what FTX does? FTX tries to find the, tries to find retail. They try to figure out who's retail and they bring them onto the platform. And then, you know, other folks who are traders, I'm not going to pay you anything if you're, if you're just like a trading firm. You know, you have to come and, you know, pay me because you, you want my flow. You want to get access to the retail traders on my platform. If you're in DeFi, you can't do that. You have no idea who your users are. And so you can't really market. You can't really, you know, uh, build a, a strategy of how to develop your, uh, your margin and attract high value customers because you don't know who your customers are. That has to change for DeFi to become competitive with CeFi. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things you were talking about earlier with interoperability is how do these blockchains talk to each other? And I think, with identity is is how do people talk to applications and there's so much information that needs to get passed back and forth it's you you mentioned a lot of things around credit and that's the that's a lot of the finance side of things that once you have that information extends possibilities of what you can do in terms of borrowing and and especially with some of those real life assets you mentioned. But there's also like, who are you? What are you interested in from like a marketing perspective? How can we tailor our user experience to you? So there's so many interesting layers of identity. And that's why I'm excited about NFT domains is, and something I feel like we've seen as first, they've given you a human readable name for your wallet address. And then at least with unstoppable NFT domain names, like we've worked on adding profiles. So this profile, it starts to add some like basic granular data in your like your crypto identity, your addresses, NFT avatar. But then we've added like humanity checks. So it's can I prove to an application I'm a human? And then I think in the future, just adding like KYC and then adding all these off chain data associations. Like, can you connect your, your crypto identity, your Web3 identity with your mortgage to prove that you own a, own a home? Can you do stuff like that? So I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting like identity innovation over the next couple of years in Web3. Yeah, I think it's huge. I think it's absolutely huge. So I, I, I think this is one of the important problems that a lot of people are going to be racing towards over the next six months. Awesome. Well, thanks for that perspective. Now, I, I do want to respect your time here and wrap up. So I want to ask uh, a couple rapid fire questions. The The first one is, it's our one to web three series. Who's an influential web three creator, entrepreneur, artist that's inspired or educated you? I'd say, I mean, Naval is definitely, <laughs> is the most obvious one. I'd say also Mark Andreessen has been very inspiring to me as a uh, as as an investor but also thinking about how the evolution of a new industry will play out i think his his analogies from the early days of the internet uh really really resonate with me about how to think about the way that web3 is going to evolve you really think that those analogies hold value like it's it's not unrealistic to compare crypto to the internet i think it's unrealistic to pretend that crypto is going to be exactly like the internet is going to play out in the same way or the same time scales crypto is fundamentally different it's a different thing it does a different thing than the internet does but history doesn't repeat itself but if you don't study the patterns of how history plays out you are doomed to uh, fall prey to the exact mistakes that your predecessors did yeah all right second question what's your favorite nft favorite nft i'd say uh, i'd say azuki's azuki's i have a soft spot for Okay, and I saw that for the Dragonfly Capital, you guys have a PFP of a punk. Is that the the punk that the the fund owns? Yes, that is correct. 
That is correct. That's awesome. That's a that's an awesome zombie punk. I, I've seen the price of punks like they're slowly dropping and I'm kind of trying to figure out, all right, at what point do I maybe loop some friends in and try to get one? Because uh, that would be a grill NFT for me too. For sure. I mean, we're long-term believers in punks. So yeah, many people on the team have, have punks personally as well. That's awesome. And then my third question is, in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse or in crypto that we're just not talking about yet? The craziest thing? I don't know. I'm not good at crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit too much of a realist. I feel like the thing that people will be doing is, um, I mean, this is just really obvious. It's not that crazy, but I think people will have full-time jobs in the metaverse. When I, when I think about what those full-time jobs will be like, I imagine they will be mostly, call it like political uh, jobs. So it'll be things like organizing groups of people. It'll be things like creating committees and all this kind of, like there will be, there will be a lot of almost bureaucratic jobs in the metaverse, uh, I suspect. You know, there's some things that AIs are very good at. AIs are very bad at thinking about complex concepts about human flourishing and, you know, what what is the right kind of way to govern some of these spaces. Uh, and so I suspect that a lot of jobs in the metaverse, especially early on, will be very bureaucratic. Mm. Interesting. Well, thanks so much for sharing your take on Web3, on crypto, some of the trends you're seeing and paying attention to. I really found it insightful and I always appreciate a good analogy. So the blockchains of cities, really insightful there. So Haseeb, can you please let us know where to follow you, connect with you online after this? We all listen to the pod. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find me on Twitter. Just Google my name, Haseeb Qureshi or uh, I'm Haseeb, H-O-S-S-E-E-B on Twitter. I do a show every couple of weeks on the Unchained podcast with Laura Shin. So you can check that out. Uh, it's called The Chopping Block. Other than that, yeah, just come find me, at me. I'm always happy to chat. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Unstoppable podcast. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday. So if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, following the pod helps a lot. If you're on YouTube, drop a like and subscribe. With that, I'll see you next week. Catching the metaverse. Peace out. Ciao. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.